Good evening, church. It is great to see you. If you are able, please rise up for the word of God, for the reading of his word. Um, please open up to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and we'll be reading in verses 1 and 2. The title of my sermon is Living a Godly Life in Every Circumstance. So once again, the uh, scriptural reading is 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2. Let us read God's word. All who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their own masters as worthy of, of all respect, so that God's name and his teachings will not be blasphemy. Let those who have believing masters not, disrespect, uh, not, not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better, since those who benefit from their service are, are believers and dearly loved ones. With that said, let's go to our Lord God in prayer once more. We thank you, Lord, for this evening. We thank you, Lord, for the freedoms that you have freely given to us, or I should say undeserving creatures. Lord, I just ask you, Lord, is to remove me as possible, Lord, and, and may your name be glorified. I pray, Father, that what is said tonight does not resonate with earthly, or I should say earthly things. Lord, I just pray that your name will be proclaimed, that people can see your love, your mercy, your justice, your self-sacrifice, I pray that those who do not know you, Lord, that they will come to receive you. I pray for salvation. We love you, Lord, and we thank you so much for, once again, for the freedoms that you have given us. And we pray this in your son, Jesus Christ's name, and all the God's people say, amen. amen. You may be seated. As I was going and studying this passage, it definitely has resonated with me and has weighed heavy on me. And also allowed me to reflect on my own selfishness. God has opened up my eyes to see that it's not so much the big things that matters, but it really comes down to the small things that matters that we do. I am in awe. I am full of thanksgiving for those who came before us. And I'm not speaking about the Jonathan Edwards or the Charles Spurgeons, those, those names that, that really are the, 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 the giants of, of the faith. But we can't forget those who are not named. So in tonight's 
passage here, this section of scripture here, we are going to enter into the realm of slaves and slavery. And I want you to keep in mind that the gospel would not be here if it wasn't for their part. So with all that said, when it comes down to the, to the, to the main point of this passage here, I'll, I'll boil it down to this. By honoring authority with Christ-centered attitude, we uphold the integrity of the gospel and reflect God's order in a fallen world. And we repeat that. By honoring authority with a Christ-centered attitude, we uphold the integrity of the gospel and reflect God, God's order in a fallen world. You see, the Apostle Paul calls all Christians to live godly lives in all circumstances. In our lives, we will, we will inevitably encounter various situations and challenges that test our faith. We must maintain our integrity and devotion to God in all circumstances, as this will bring honor to his name and strengthen our relationship with him. Honor. Honor. Let's discuss honor. Honor is described as as esteemed value or great respect in the Bible. To honor someone is to value or treat them with the utmost respect. The Bible demands that we should show courtesy and honor to our parents, the elderly, and those in positions of authority. We find that in Ephesians 6.2, Leviticus 19.32, and also in Romans chapter 13. But we have to admit that all respect and authority originates from God alone. He deserves every bit of respect and honor. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, it reads, Honor everyone, love the brothers and sisters, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the emperor. Peter encourages us to honor those in authority, especially the emperor, who should be what? Respected, since they represent God's ultimate authority. And let me kind of back up here because when Peter is saying that, the emperor at that time was no friend to Christians or to the Jews and to the Jews. Look, church, a prime example is the command to submit to governing authorities because God has established them. We see that in Romans 13, 1 through 6. And so as stated in Romans 13, 2, so then the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. Thus, as Christians, we must obey and respect those in authority. A lower standard would be an insult to God. In tonight's passage, the Apostle Paul encourages the early believers to live godly lives by honoring their masters, even if they were in slavery. This act of submission and obedience, even in difficult situations, demonstrates the importance of living a life that reflects our faith in every aspect. 
By doing so, we can afford the slandering of God's name and the teaching of the gospel. In a world where Christianity is often misunderstood and misrepresented, it is our responsibility to be a shining example of what it means to live a life that glorifies God. As believers, we must apply this principle to our daily lives, particularly in the workplace. Regardless of our position or status, we should always strive to live a pleasing life to God. And this includes being honest, hardworking, and respectful towards colleagues and superiors. I have some questions that's related to this passage that I want to share with you. My first question was, is how should Christians live godly in every circumstance? pertaining to this passage. What does it mean to live godly in various circumstances, including those involving authority and submission? What am I to do? What am I to do when my boss is in favor of abortion? Or a Nazi? or a manager who is anti-Semitic. For us as Americans in our culture today, we can just easily quit and just go on to something else if nothing doesn't happen with our supervisor or with our boss. It's easy to do that. However, it was more difficult for those who were in slavery. Look, in order for us to find answers to those questions that I mentioned, we'll find it in this passage tonight. You see, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul addresses the relationship between slaves and their Christian masters. He instructs slaves to honor their masters so that the name of God and his teachings may not be blasphemy. This passage reflects the social dynamics of the time and guides how believers should behave in various uh, social roles. When we look here at verse 1, please read read with me once again in verse 1. It says that all, all who are under the yoke as slaves should regard their masters as worthy of all respect so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemy. Man, that's a lot to take in. That is a lot to take in. Because the question that came to my mind was, is how can an influential Christian like the Apostle Paul allow cruel and degrading slavery to continue without condemning it? It just blew my mind. The first time I read it. But the great thing that I appreciate God is like, look, you got to do biblical hermeneutics. We have to examine Paul's culture to respond to the question. So let's do that right now. You see, Paul was writing to Christians living in a slave culture. The Apostle Paul does not preach the necessity of outlawing uh, slavery, 
Paul has no desire to overthrow their current system. Well, why is that? Why is that? You see, Paul acknowledges that slavery is a part of this fallen and corrupt world, but he does not in any way support racial slavery. He does not support that. I just want to point that out. But throughout the first century of the Greco-Roman era, slavery was an essential social institution. The workers who performed labor for their wealthy masters were known as slaves. It was a popular employment arrangement. It was essential to the Roman Empire's whole economic system. Please understand that. It was, it was important to the whole economic system in the Roman Empire. Slaves who worked as permanent employees took on roles such as supervisors, chefs, craftspeople, and teachers, and so on. Slaves even became part of the family. It was very rare. But there were very various methods used to obtain slaves in the Roman Empire. I'm going to quote something from the PBS television network in regards to how the Roman Empire obtained slaves. Quote, most slaves during the Roman Empire were foreigners, and unlike in modern times, Roman slavery was not based on race. Please understand that. Once again, let me highlight that. Roman slavery was not based on race. Slaves in Rome might include prisoners of war, sailors captured or sold by pirates, or slaves bought outside of Roman territory. In hard times, it was, un- it was not uncommon for desperate Roman citizens to raise money by selling their children into slavery, end quote. So there's a lot of things that was going on in the Roman Empire when it came to slavery. And let me just mention something that the, that the show did not mention. There was, a, there was a lot of people even at that time that didn't have money, that didn't have funds to be able to support family members and stuff. And so what would happen is that they would sell, them, sell themselves into slavery in order to get some type of financial gain in order to support their families. Look, church, although the system of slavery in the Roman Empire was, was functional, because it was, it was the way of life in the Roman Empire. It could have been improved in the area when the wicked hearts of men were to blame for the majority of the mistreatment of slaves. Because there was a lot of mistreatment of the slaves. Such mistreatments can be found, and let me just say, yeah, I want to add on to that, because such mistreatments can be found in every system of, of employment, whether in slavery, communism, or capitalism. But the Roman Empire was not the only nation that had slaves. The Jewish nation had slaves as well. The Jews also employed the institution of slavery in addition to the Romans. The Old Testament strictly protected slaves' rights, but never outright banned slavery. You see, according to Exodus uh, 21-2, Jewish slaves may not be kept 
for, uh, for longer than six years unless they freely decide to stay, which is also in Exodus 21, 5 through 6. Another fact about Jewish slavery is that when slaves departed from slavery, those who had a wife and kids could take them with them. However, those who received a wife from their master could not keep her until her time was up. To safeguard the master's rights, and that was imperative in the Jewish nation. Slaves mistreated by their own masters were to be free. That's in Exodus 21, 26, and 27. They could practice their religion freely, including keeping the Sabbath in Exodus 20:10. Slaves also enjoyed uh, uh, civil rights. There, were, uh, there was uh, retribution for killing a slave. You find that in Exodus 21, 20. Israel was to protect foreign slaves who came to ask for sanctuary. You find that in Deuteronomy 23, 15, and 16. Slaves, uh, slaves possess economic rights, including the right to own other slaves. You find that in 2 Samuel chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Also, um, okay, this verse got cut off. Um, but we also find that in Ezra chapter 8, verse 20. Jewish slaves in the New Testament times were similarly protected. Gentile slaves, well, let's be honest, they were not always well treated. But nevertheless, slaves had food, clothing, housing, housing provided, and along with a small wage and security. Slavery was a workable, if not ideal, system in that period. It's quite interesting because I didn't realize it until a few moments ago, because tomorrow we'll be celebrating Martha Luther King's birthday, so... I just want to make it clear that this has nothing to do with that. So this is strictly for God. <laughs> so with that said, um, I want to highlight some things when it comes to slavery here in America. And I want to be able to show the differences between Jewish slavery and American slavery in the South before the Civil, Civil War. Let me just say this, church, that there is a vast difference between Jewish slavery in the Old Testament and New Testament and American slavery in the South and before the Civil War. The practice of slavery in the Old Testament and New Testament, as found in the Christian Bible, differs significantly from the system of slavery in, the, in, the, uh, in America, in the South. This distinction can be analyzed in terms of, of this. I'm going to Analyze it in, in, three, in three terms here. The first is the nature of slavery. Second is the treatment of slaves. And then third is the legal and social status of slaves. Let's begin with the nature of slavery. In the Old and New Testament, slavery was often a result of debt or, or warfare, and it was not necessarily uh, hereditary. Slaves could eventually be set free through various means, such as uh, minumission or after serving a set period of time. Let me kind of back up there. Minumission is basically a, a, a certificate from the master to the slave saying that you're free. Kind of, I guess kind of think of it a way, hopefully not in a bad way, 
uh, a certificate of divorce. <laughs> so I hope that resonates. Um, in contrast, uh, American slavery in the South was primarily based on race and was a hereditary, a hereditary institution with African slaves and their descendants being perpetually enslaved. Meaning it's just like, there's no way out. It's just like, once you were caught, once you were in the system, you were in the system forever. And then once you have children, they were in the system as well. So it was ever, you know, it was just a, a, a cycle that was unending at that time. So that is the nature of slavery. The second I want to touch on is the treatment of slaves. The treatment of slaves in Jewish society was humane. It was humane. With biblical laws and regulations protecting their rights and well-being, as I just read. Slaves were to be treated fairly, and they were, and they were allowed to marry and have families. In some cases, masters were required to provide slaves with food and clothing and rest. On the other hand, the treatment of slaves in the American South was brutal and inhumane, with physical abuse, torture, and separation of families being a commonplace. Third, legal and social status of slaves. In Jewish society, slaves were considered part of the household and were expected to work for their masters. However, they were still to recognize as human beings with rights and dignity. They could own property, marry, enter into contracts. In, a, in the American South, slaves were considered property and had no legal rights or social standing. They were treated as subhuman with no rights or protections. The practice of slavery in the, Old in the Old and New Testament and the American uh, uh, South uh, before the Civil War differ significantly in terms of the nature of, <clears throat> of, the nature of slavery and the, and the treatment of slaves and the legal and social status of slaves. While biblical slavery was often a consequence of debt or warfare and can be diminished through manumission or time, American slavery was a hereditary institution based on race with cruel treatment with no legal rights. So having said all that, having said that, we still haven't asked the question. How can an influential Christian like the Apostle Paul allow cruel and degrading slavery to continue without condemning it. I'm going to quote something from John MacArthur because I think he said it best. He goes on to say, why didn't Jesus and, and Paul call for the freeing of the slaves? Quote, by the New Testament era, slavery was, was waning in the Roman Empire. Though there was still an enormous number of slaves, for Jesus and the apostles to have called for slavery uh, uh, abolishment would have meant to promote unemployment and social chaos. Further, the saving, the saving message of the gospel would have been swallowed up in the call for social reform. Eventually, the influence of Christianity helped, helped bring it in to the abusive forms of slavery in the Roman Empire. 
So there's a lot that which John MacArthur says. So what he's, what he's getting at here is just like, they didn't call, Jesus didn't call for the abolishment of slaves. It's because it will just result in war. And how can you go against the Roman Empire at that time that had the top military in that region? They would just wipe out the Jews. They would wipe out anybody. And if they were to create a, a, a revolt, the, the Romans would be like, oh, we're done with these people. We're just going to wipe them off the face of the earth. Then where would be the gospel? Where would be the spread of the gospel? Remember, God has a plan in everything. Let's talk about Paul here. Look, Paul wanted to abolish slavery without going to war to achieve it. And I think he learned that from Jesus Christ. Paul believed that avoiding disgrace to Jesus and his teachings was more significant than trying in vain to overthrow the society order through revolution. The gospel was the teaching that the unbelievers would slander. Paul believed that, scor that, uh, Paul believed that scorning the gospel would disrespect the gospel's author, meaning Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. He wished for Christians to refrain from doing any action that would lead to that. So once again, what are you going to do against a massive army, a massive nation at that time with a bunch of slaves who have not been in the military, who, has, who have no type of military strategist or anything else like that? They would get slaughtered. Paul wished Christians to refrain from doing any actions that would lead to that. And we see that example in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 to 9. And I'll read it. Paul says this, Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Don't work while, while, being, uh, don't work while being watched as people pleaser, but as slaves of Christ, doing God's will from your heart. Serve God with a good attitude as the Lord, uh, <clears throat> good attitude as the Lord, and to not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both your master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with them. No matter what the circumstances is, Paul is calling anybody who is a brother and sister in Christ and in a really bad situation to continue to honor, the, to honor those who are in authority of them. While acknowledging that slavery did exist in the Apostle Paul's era, many slaves have converted to Christianity. Slaves in the New Testament church have a new position as a result of the work of Christ Jesus. 
Since slaves were regarded as being on par with other people spiritually, they should be respected. Some slaves in the Christian household had become disrespectful to their masters, and this had resulted in a bad witness. Let me just say a bad public witness. There's a reason why Paul pinned this down, because there was a problem that was going on. And it was showing a bad witness to the gospel. Paul had to address this because this could get ugly really, really fast. Praise the Lord that the slaves received Christ Jesus, right? And with that knowledge, it's just like, look, I have freedom in Christ. So if Christ who is my true master, does that mean that I must continue to serve my earthly master? You see the dilemma that's that's taking place there? There is an issue that's going on. And this is why the slaves were disrespecting their earthly masters. So the question's got to be asked is, you know, they're probably asking or, or, you know, at least I should say that I asked myself and what I perhaps, what they, what the slaves were thinking is just like, look, What were the slaves to do now that they were free in Christ? They're free in Christ. They have freedom in Christ. The chains should be lifted off. But that wasn't the case. This is where I appreciate Paul here. Because Paul understands their situation here. This is why Paul said in verse 1, all who are under the yoke as slaves. All who are under the yoke as slaves. You see, Paul is referring to the enslaved people in the Roman Empire who are under the yoke of their masters and who were subjected to harsh living conditions and treatment. The use of the term yoke is, in this context is, is, is significant as it is a biblical metaphor of the burden of slavery and servitude. So the slaves are like, I'm free in Christ, so why why must I continue to be mistreated? Why must I continue to be disrespected? Jesus came to save us. He He came to save us. He came to free us. So why must I continue to endure this? And Paul is saying, he's like, look, I understand your situation. I know the mistreatment that you're going through. But this is what you got to do. This is what you got to do. Here's the the, the Apostle Paul's answer. Slaves. You should regard your masters as worthy of all respect. Slap in the slave's face. What? Like, what do you mean? I want you to to get an understanding of the minds of the slave's mental capacity at that point. Like, you mean to tell me that the person who continues to mistreat me, who continues to abuse me, and not only abuse me, but abuse my family, who mistreat them, 
You're telling me that they're worthy of respect? No, here's what Paul said. No, they're worthy of all respect. All respect. Man, like, Paul, like, I'm, 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 I'm not understanding this. We're not understanding this. Why? As I mentioned, that some slaves were being disrespectful. This is what we we're saying earlier. This is the Roman Empire. This is the Roman Empire. Although that there were Romans who were Roman citizens who were converted to Christianity, please keep in mind that they, they go back home to non-Christian Roman citizens. And so when, they're, when the non-citizens are hearing this type of disrespect that is coming from slaves, and the Christian masters are, are perhaps not even not sure how to handle this whole situation because they know that the, the Romans are not going to stand for this, and they know they want to serve Christ in a way that is honoring to him. And so in a way, they're kind of receiving this disrespect from their slaves. But this is the picture that Paul is, is trying to get them to understand. And I believe they understand this. It's like, look, if you continue to disrespect the, the Roman citizen and you continue to do so, and, and, and word gets to, the, to the, uh, the, govern, the governing officials, this can be far worse than what you're, what you're enduring now. They can just be like, screw. Oh, sorry. <laughs> they can just say, forget about the slaves. Let's take them all out. This Christianity thing, they're ruining our society. They're ruining our way of life. And we cannot allow this to happen. We're just going to just X them all out. And where does where does this Christianity origi originate from? All from the Jews? Oh well, forget this. Let's go over there and let's take care of them. This can be war. Paul's advice to slaves to respect their masters can also remind them of their ultimate authority that lies with God. It lies with God. This message would encourage slaves to prioritize their faith and spiritual growth above earthly circumstances. It's like, look, we're living in a fallen world. We're living in a fallen world. It's, it's corrupt in every single way. But always remember that God deserves all the honor and he expects his children conduct themselves in a way that is God-honoring. An example of that is, he, is Jesus Christ himself. Once again, I pointed out, he's not going out there, you know, uh, 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 raising, you know, uh, problems or conflicts when it comes to slavery. Because there's a bigger picture at hand. And he submitted under the authorities, regardless of the mistreatment. He did not use profanity against them. He didn't bring a sword to kill them. 
but a lamb, an innocent lamb, without sin, to be mistreated. Not only just by the Romans, but by the Jews. To be taken up upon the cross, to be beaten, to be flogged, and, and to experience all that, that we know that what, what took place. He didn't deserve that. But yet, he submitted under the authority of the Father, of God the Father. So in the same way, slaves, Jesus had been mistreated. But he did not disrespect anybody. And whoever ruled over him, he submitted. It is here that the Apostle Paul encouraged the early believers to live godly lives by respecting their masters, even if they were in slavery. Even if it's in slavery, the act of submission and obedience, even in difficult situations, demonstrates the importance of living a life that reflects our faith in every aspect, that reflects the gospel in every aspect. As I mentioned in my introduction, I said this, it says, look, by submitting under the authority, by doing so, we can avoid the slandering of God's name and the teaching of the gospel in a world where Christianity is often misunderstood and misrepresented. It is our responsibility. It is our responsibility to be a shining example of what it means to live a life that glorifies God. And that's exactly what Paul is telling the, telling the slaves here. They don't, know, they don't know yet the gospel. They haven't heard the gospel. And remember, they didn't have the writings of the gospel at that time. But the gospel will be reflected in their actions. Why is it that although you get mistreated day after day after day, you continue to serve your master faithfully, that you continue to honor him faithfully, you see, that is the gospel witness. When the other Roman, uh, non-Roman citizens are beginning to see it, it's just like, man, your, guy, your, your, your slaves work harder than my slaves. Like, why is that? Well, let me go talk to that slave. Why is it that you work so hard? I see how he treats you and everything else like that. Why is that? It was because of my Lord Jesus Christ. It is because of my Lord Jesus Christ. And let me tell you about him, if you would, if you will let me. Let me give you an illustration. Let me give you what it looks like to submit under the authority of harsh treatment. And we all know this individual very well. In the book of Genesis, Joseph, Joseph, 
You see, in the book of Genesis, Joseph is portrayed as a man who demonstrated unwavering loyalty and obedience to his master, even in the face of adversity. The story of Joseph in the book of Genesis is an exemplary illustration of how an individual can maintain integrity and faithfulness while serving under authority. Joseph, the favorite, the favorite son of Jacob, was sold into slavery by his jealous brothers and became a servant in the, in the, <clears throat> in the house of a high-ranking Egyptian official named Potiphar. Despite facing numerous hardships and injustices at the hands of his masters, Joseph maintained a strong sense of faith, trust, and obedience to God throughout his ordeal. Joseph's attitude towards his, ma- his harsh masters can be understood through the following key points. The first is faith and trust in God. Joseph's unwavering faith in God allowed him to endure his hardships. He believed God controlled his life and would ultimately bring him out of his difficult situation. This faith helped him maintain a positive attitude even in the faith of adversity. The second key point is obedience and loyalty. That Joseph demonstrated remarkable obedience and loyalty to his masters. When Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of sexual assault, Joseph refused to to disgrace his master by submitting to her advances. Instead, he remained loyal to Potiphar and was later rewarded for his integrity. Let me just pause here for a minute because I want you to understand that submitting under the authority of an earthly master does not mean that you are to go and to sin against God by whatever that they tell you to do that is unlawful to God's will, his law. If they're telling you to do something that you know that is not part of God's will and that goes against his commandments, you are not, you are not to fulfill that request. The third key point is diligence and hard work. Despite being subjected to harsh treatment, Joseph worked diligently in his task, eventually earning the trust and respect of his masters. His diligence and hard work led to his promotion, allowing him to rise in ranks within the household. Although that he was in harsh treatment, Joseph was a hard worker. He went out there, he did, he gave it 110% every time. And the officials were like, whoa, like this guy, this, this guy, this slave is standing out. He's smart, he's intelligent. Let's, let's, let's move him up, let's bump him up. Having said that, Joseph's attitude towards his harsh masters in the book of Genesis can be characterized by his faith in God and obedience and loyalty, his diligence and hard work. These qualities allow Joseph to not only endure his difficult circumstances, but also to rise in providence and save his family from famine, famine ultimately. Let me, let me just say that again. Because of his Willingness to obey authority. 
And all of that he was mistreated. This would happen. He rose to providence and saved his family from famine, ultimately. Saved his family. In the same way. In the same way. The slaves during Paul's time, with their obedience, will, or I should say have, saved families and future generations through the gospel of Christ Jesus. It would, thank you, brother. Through Christ Jesus. Just think about that. If the slaves decided to revolt, it would have been the end of them. Now, in no way, shape, or form do I believe that God would well, allow that to happen and he didn't allow it to happen. But there is ramifications of, of such things. Families could be decimated. Nations can be wiped off of the existence of earth. But the slaves, they didn't do that. Although they received the word from, uh, from the word of God from, from the Apostle Paul. I'm sure it was hard for them. I'm sure it was difficult for them. But they understood that ultimately they're serving Jesus during their mistreatment from their earthly masters. Looking at verse 2, it reads that, let those who have believing masters not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but serve them even better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Let me just kind of break it down to you here. The Apostle Paul is saying this. Stop taking advantage of your brothers and sister in Christ in the workplace. Stop taking advantage of your brothers and sisters in the workplace. Slaves, do not take advantage of your brother and sister who is your master. Serve them. Honor them. Don't try to skip out of work. Don't make their lives more difficult than it already is. If they tell you to do something that is lawful, then you do so. And you do so with a joyful heart. But don't use your position as a brother in Christ to manipulate certain situations. I say this because I have experienced that myself. Being in the military, I was a supervisor. And I had a brother in Christ during that time. And he made my job frustrating. He would come in late. 
He didn't want to do what was, when I asked him, he was like, hey, you need to work on your qualifications. He, he was just slow pacing it. He would always try to get out of work early. He would always interfere with my responsibilities, which was really frustrating. Why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? Here, man, I, th I think this is a way better way. I think you should do it like this. I give him that look. I'm like, bro, know your lane. You got to know your lane. You know, it's, it's sad when you got non-believers who are willing to go out and work hard and perform and do the things that is necessary. And then when you got your Christian brother and sister who is not willing to do, to put in the work or to put in the time. And then they want to get upset with you when you call them out on that. They want to get angry with you. Because, hey, you're my feather brother. Why are you treating me? And why are you treating, you know, so-and-so who's not a believer that way? That's the problem. The problem is, is that you're not being a witness to Christ. The problem is, is that everyone knows that you're, who, you're saying that you're a Christian. And they're confused because they see me who is a Christian. Everyone knew who I, I was a Christian. But yet I'm working hard. I'm doing everything that I can. But they know that I have a, a, a relationship with you in Christ. But we also had an outside relationship too. But you're not doing anything. You're lazy. You show up to work all late all the time. How is that showing witness to God, ultimately to God? Are you going to do that before God? When God tells you to do something, you're just going to, oh, I'm just going to go there when I want to go. No, I guarantee you're going to be there when he calls you to. When he says be there at 10 o'clock, you're going to be there at, 10, uh, at 945. So why is it that all of a sudden that when it comes to me as your brother in Christ, who's your supervisor, that you can try to take advantage of me? That you, all of a sudden you can just get into my lane. It's just like, look, you know. And I, and I did it in the, in the most godly way, believe me, people have. But it was frustrating. And I just told him, I was like, look, brother. It's just like, if I needed your help, I would ask for it. But there is a, a job description that is specifically for you. And there's a job description that's specifically for me as a supervisor. And I don't need you to continue to interfere with my job. You're making it way harder. You're making it more difficult. And you need to start showing more uh, 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 of, a, uh, of a Christian or a Christ-like witness before those who are there. We should be the first ones here. We should be the first ones to, uh, 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 to demonstrate, you know, uh, 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 I know there's a word, I can't think of it. We should be able to walk the walk. People should be able to see us that we're there on time that we're willing to listen, even in the most difficult situation. Because believe me, I got yelled at several times. But I was always like, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. All this. I, sh I show ultimate respect. The people know my work ethics. And so when the people question me, it's just like, where'd you get that work ethic from? It's just like, number one, from God. And then number two, my grandmother taught me. But I'm working for God in everything that I do. 
That allowed, that allowed me opportunities to pray for people, to open up and to be able to share the gospel with people. And I just had to let them know, just like, you're not giving any people any reasons why on why they want to be a part of Christianity or to be a part of Christ. And shame on you for getting angry with me. What have I done? Have I caused you any type of grief or, or have I sinned against you? No, I have not. I digress because I can keep going on. But look, this is what Paul is saying here. And he's saying to this, uh, say, saying to this to us for today as well. Look, living godly lives in the workplace, that's very important. It's very important because as believers, we must apply this principle to our daily lives. And especially, especially in the workplace where we're with a bunch of people that don't even know Christ. Regardless of our position or status, we should always strive to live a pleasing life to God. Remember that we're always serving God. We must always keep that in mind. This includes being honest, hardworking, and respectful towards colleagues and supervisors. And even if they're being mean to us, I mean, they say choice words or whatever, but guys, we got to have a little bit more, more backbone. I mean, Jesus went through more harsh treatment than we have ever been. But yet when someone says something, oh, that is, we get all hurt. Come on, we gotta be, we gotta be better than that. <sighs> Living godly in every circumstances. The apostle Paul instructs Timothy to uh, really just to uh, instructs to Timothy regarding slaves and their masters, providing timeless principles for living godly lives in every circumstances. Christians are called to honor God through our conduct, regardless of our social status or position. The, this, this passage here, it really does challenge us to consider how we can apply these principles in our lives today. Let me just share with some of these principles. The first principle is honoring authority. Honor, honoring authority. Paul emphasizes the importance of honoring authority figures. Even when one feels disadvantaged or mistreated, this principle extends beyond the context of slavery and applies to our relationships with, with our employers, leaders, and, govern, and governing authorities. Look, there are people in office that I don't like either. But nonetheless, when it comes to Romans 13, I am to submit under their authority. By showing respect and honor to those in positions of authority, we demonstrate a reverence for God established order. Remember, it's his established order. There's a reason why this person is in office. The second is maintaining integrity. Maintaining integrity. Living godly lives in every circumstances requires maintaining integrity, upholding Christian values, even when we face with challenging situations. If I'm, if I'm in a challenging situation where I'm dealing with a Nazi, then I got to respond in a way that is Christ-like. Let me tell you another story that happened to me in, in the military. And I think I perhaps showed you to uh, share with you before. I, I had to deal with the races. Where there's 15, 15 of us in a room. 
And I just gave a lawful order. It's like, hey, go put the turn screens out on, on Tangle 2 on, on, on aircraft 782. And this guy turned around and looked at me. He's like, I will not do that, the N-word. Why should I listen to you, N-word? And boy, was that room quiet. And, and usually when you got military folks, when there's 15 or 20 people, it's a rowdy bunch. And it gets loud. But when they heard that, everything was silent. And I tell you, at that moment, I can feel everyone's eyes are on upon me. And, they're, and I can feel what they're thinking. Oh, man, you have every right to, to slug this guy in the face. You, you have every right. I mean, it's just like the, 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 uh, uh, the air or the aura of this, I mean, just overall this, you have every right to, to cause violence to this guy. And then it's just like their influences is also kind of really, it's, it's, it's tempting me to do it. And thank you, and, and thank by the Holy Spirit that I did not act upon those feelings. Because then I, I know that the Holy Spirit is talking to me. It's just like, what would Jesus do in this situation? I know it's cliche and, and everything else like that, but it, it resonated with me. And at that moment, I, I prayed to God. And I just responded to the individual. I was like, look, regardless of race, regardless of how you may feel about me or your beliefs, just remember that we are in a war. This is when we're fighting in Iraq. And our brothers and sisters who are there in Iraq are counting on us to complete our mission here. I have no issues with you, and I don't want to start any issues with you. But I just ask you if you can just respect the authority and which was given to me so that way we can complete our mission. The mood changed. It changed completely. And you know what? The guy didn't acknowledge me, but he went out there and put the turn screens out on Tangle 2. And since then, I had no issues with him. When I asked him to do something, he wouldn't did it. There's always a way for us to respond in a, in a biblical way. And God always gives us a way out in those particular situations. It, it really is our, 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 our decision to do the right thing and to understand is just like, if I do the right thing, that means I'm serving God. And I want to do that. Or we can do the wrong thing where I'm just serving myself and create self-pleasure for myself by pounding this guy in the face. And what would that do? Wouldn't do anything. I, I know that nothing would have happened to me. But ultimately, that guy would end up hating me and I, and I ultimately knew that it would tank the gospel. So maintain integrity no matter what the situation is. And the last I want to share is uh, cultivating a spirit of service. The importance of cultivating a spirit of service, regardless of our, our roles or responsibility, look, 
We should not be seeking just recognition. Like that should not be our sole purpose. We should not just be looking for any type of favoritism of, of some, some fashion or some form. Oh, you're my brother in Christ. So, man, I got, I got favor with you, man. You're going to let me off today? How do you let me off 30 minutes early? That should not be the case. Recognizing that we're ultimately serving Christ, I just want us to understand that having a selfless attitude sets us apart as followers of Christ and demonstrates our commitment to living out his teachings. Cultivating a spirit of service is selfless attitude. It's a selfless attitude. In conclusion, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 through 2, it challenges us to live godly lives in every circumstances by honoring authority and maintaining integrity and cultivating a, a spirit of service. As we navigate various roles and, and relationships in our lives, may we seek to bring glory to God through our actions and attitudes. Our actions and attitudes. I just have one more thing to say. How are we witnessing to Christ when we show up to church late? How are we witnessing to Christ? if we don't get take our own worship service seriously. You know, there's a lot of people that work hard to serve God. To be able to be unified in Christ. It really breaks my heart then when I see my brothers and sisters who work hard and we show up on the third or fourth song of the worship service. They work hard, not just for us, but for our Lord Jesus Christ. When we are tardy to our small groups, when small groups are supposed to start at 6.30, we show up at 6.45 or 6.20. What does that say to those that we Invite the non-believers and everyone just kind of shows up, you know, uh, beyond the time. Oh, but we can show up to work on time. When our boss asks us to be at seven, we're there at seven or if not earlier. If a judge summons us to be to, to a jury duty, oh, we're there. We're there on time. And we're, we're, we're going to pay attention. We're going to do whatever that, that needs to be done necessarily. What does it say about our witness towards Christ? I'm going to say it, church. It's, it's shameful. It's an insult to God. It is an insult to God. And we have to do better. 
We have to do better. In a fallen world that is going on today where there's so much confusion, we should be showing people that we, that we love and we appreciate our God, that we honor God with all of our hearts, with all of our souls, and with all of our minds. But we cannot even show up to a 10 o'clock service at 10 o'clock. That brings shame upon our Savior. You see, the slaves at that time, although that Paul had directed them to do something that they know it was going to be hard, but yet they were obedient. And how do we know that they were obedient? Because we have the message of the, of the reconciliation here, the gospel message that is here. That's how I know that they were faithful. The hardships that they endure, but yet we can't even show up to church on time? This is, call it for what it is. That's the reality of things. How is it that a non-believer, you know, they see us at work and everything. Oh, I love the Lord. I praise the Lord and all that stuff. Great, I want to go to your church. What time does it start? At 10 o'clock. They, they get here at, at 9.50, and all of a sudden, you show up around to the third song of the worship service, and other people are, 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 are ushering in the, the person who came to see, to hopefully, hopefully that you will show up. I'm sorry, it's just, I'm so disturbed by this. Let me digress. But I think that, I know that the reality is that we have to do better in a fallen world. We have to be a better witness to Christ. Do we love him or do we not love him? Do we care about the things that he say or do we not? Are we willing to do more for, for earthly things than of heavenly things? To those who do not know Christ, let me just share with this with you. I'm going to share the gospel. But in order to understand the message of the gospel, I just kind of really want to break it down into several key themes here. The first key theme is God's love. God's love. The gospel message emphasizes that God loves all people unconditionally, regardless of their background, actions, or circumstances. This love demonstrates through Christ's life and teachings and the ultimate sacrifice on the cross. The second is this, is that there is the forgiveness of sins. The gospel message assures that through faith in Christ Jesus, believers can receive forgiveness for their sins and be reconciled with God. This forgiveness is made possible by Jesus' atoning death on the cross, which was paid for a price for the sins of humanity through his precious blood. Third is salvation. The gospel message offers the hope of eternal life and salvation to all people who believe in Jesus Christ and put their faith in Jesus Christ and follow his teachings. This salvation is not earned through good works or religious rituals, but it is a free gift from God made possible through Jesus' sacrifice, death, and resurrection. The fourth is discipleship. The gospel message calls for believers to follow Jesus' example by living for a life of love, a service, and self-sacrifice. A self-sacrifice. 
This includes sharing the good news with others and helping them to experience the, the transformative power of Jesus' love and forgiveness. And then last, I want to share with this hope. The gospel message instills hope in believers by assuring them that despite the challenges and struggles of this life, God is working, working, is working for their ultimate good and will bring about a perfect and eternal kingdom. If you don't have Christ, there is a payment that you must pay, and that is through the sins that you have committed. You cannot pay this on your own. This is a debt that you cannot pay. It's only a debt that an infinite God can pay. And it was paid through Jesus Christ. But if you do not receive him as Lord and Savior, if you have not put your faith in, your trust and faith in him, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 10, verse 31, it says it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God, meaning that there will be judgment upon you. And if for all eternity, God will pour out his wrath on you. And I do not want that for you, brothers and sisters. So if you have any other questions, if you, if you just need someone to talk to or to call, please call Sovereign Christian Church. And you can talk to me, Thomas Easter, or talk to anybody, any leaders that is here. But do not, do not leave this world without Christ. Church. I just ask you just to please, although that their names have not been written, we don't know who they are, but just send a thanksgiving prayer to God for the slaves who were obedient in the most harshest situations and gone through so much mistreatment. I, who knows that they were set free or not? Some of them were there for life. But one of the reasons why we have the gospel today is, is a result of their faithfulness to Christ, their willingness to endure, to persevere, to suffer for future generations. With that said, let's go to our Lord God in prayer. And